Hello and welcome to Since the World's Been Turning. This podcast series is a journey through history, one guided by the lyrics of Billy Joel's song, We Didn't Start the Fire. This episode takes us to a poignant time in the history of rock music, the brief and brilliant life of Buddy Holly. We're joined by special guest Philip Norman. Philip's the author of Buddy, the definitive biography of Buddy Holly. He's also written extensively about other rock legends, including the Beatles, the Rolling Stones and Eric Clapton. You're probably familiar with the phrase, the day the music died, the fateful day in February 1959 when a small plane plummeted into a snowy cornfield in Clear Lake, Iowa. The pilot and the trio of rock stars on board, Richie Valens, J.P. Richardson Jr., known as the Big Bopper, and Buddy Holly were all killed instantly. Buddy Holly was only 22 years old, and he was partway through a midwinter tour. In this episode, we travel back in time to learn about the young man behind the music, who accomplished such a lot and could have achieved so much more. was Buddy Holly. In late 1950s America, he's a rock star unlike any other. The themes of Buddy's songs are common, love, rebellion, what it means to be young. But his image is different. He's not a sex symbol. In pictures, he's distinctive due to his oversized glasses, his square clothes, and his happy, innocent smile. The other thing that sets him apart from Elvis and many other early rockers is his creativity. He's not only an accomplished musician, but Buddy Holly and his band, The Crickets, also write their own songs. He also has an interest in music production, and he helps to popularise some of the techniques used today, like double tracking. But to go right back to the beginning, Buddy Holly is born Charles Harden Holly in the Bible Belt town of Lubbock, Texas, in September 1936. He's the youngest of four siblings, and he gets the nickname Buddy when he's still a young child. It's the Great Depression era, and the family doesn't have much money, but the household is vibrant. They're passionate about both religion and music. Our guest, Philip Norman, introduces us to the Hollies and discusses Buddy's early musical influences. Buddy Holly grew up in, uh, in Lubbock in Texas, in West Texas, um, which is quite an interesting place. Um, it's very much Texas and lots of cowboys driving half-ton trucks around with big hats. 
It's also a, a learned place. It had in those days what was called Texas Tech, the biggest college campus in America. Um, and Buddy's family were, they were not wealthy at all. He had, uh, his father was a kind of a job man who could do things like help, helping to frame houses, houses with frames. And it was this combination of his mother and father. His father was very tall and easygoing, and his mother was rather petite and very, very forceful. And this is a combination that tends to work. And indeed, when Buddy met his, uh, his wife, the woman he was going to marry, Maria Elena uh, Santiago, uh, it was the same, a combination of a tall, easygoing guy and a feisty, energetic young, young woman. Uh, unfortunately, as we know, that that relationship didn't last. But it was a, you know, it was going to last. It would have lasted, but for the tragedy of the buddy's death. Uh, he had a, a normal sort of background education, except that he started music at a very, very early age. He had two brothers and a sister as well, and um, his two brothers are both a little bit into music, and they took Buddy along with them to a competition. Um, Buddy went in for the competition to play violin, uh, and his brothers didn't want him to win the competition, so they greased the, the bow of the violin so he couldn't make a noise with it. Nonetheless, he was so cute that he won the competition. Uh, later on, um, at a very early age, it's a, it's a part of Texas, very, very interesting character musically. Of course, it's, it's a, it was a mixed race community and, and the town of the city of Lubbock was very, very, very much segregated. Um, but it was the, the white population were, abs were really, really in love with country music, rhythm, uh, country, Western swing, all of these different kinds of Texan music. But Buddy at a very early age started listening to um, stations that were African-American, supposedly for an African-American audience. So that combination of growing up with country music but also creeping off because you had to be very careful not to be caught because you know, whites were not supposed to go in these areas, although they would have been perfectly safe if they had done. But still, Buddy had these two influences going on with him, very much as Elvis Presley did in, in Memphis, not so very far away from there. So uh, he was playing the guitar at an early age and with a, um, a friend called Bob Montgomery and other friends, um, he, he was on the radio, really, but he wasn't much, you know, was still a little, quite a small boy and playing music and very much involved in the, the musical culture of that area. By high school, Buddy and his young band of country musicians are well known in and around Lubbock. They are hungry for exposure and they play everywhere they can, sometimes travelling hundreds of miles for a gig. Their lives change forever on June the 3rd, 1955, when Elvis, with his flamboyant costumes, suggestive dance moves and distinctive rockabilly sound, comes to town, playing in the Fair Park Auditorium. Buddy is awestruck. At this point, Elvis isn't a huge national star yet, so he even gets to hang out with the King of Rock and Roll after the show. Overnight, Buddy and his group decide they want to become a rock band. Today, forming a rock group is a rite of passage for teenage musicians, but at the time it poses a few issues due to the extremely conservative town they live in. Our guest Philip Norman 
talks about Buddy's transition into rock and roll, his unsuccessful trip to Nashville, the seat of country music, and his meeting with Norman Petty. Well, uh, it was quite unusual. Um, it, Lubbock was a really, really segregated city, like lots of cities around at that time. And uh, there was no question, you know, that he, he couldn't even let his parents know that he was playing that sort of music or he was listening to it on the radio. But what happened was that um, he, he did go to, he went to Nashville, Nashville, the great heart of country music, and was recorded by someone called Owen, Owen Bradley. Um, who had a, was quite a well-known producer, but didn't get Buddy at all, didn't understand him. Buddy got nowhere in Nashville at all, which was where, if you were living in that part of America, you would hope to make your your breakthrough in Nashville because they, they had, the, record, the, the New York record companies had uh, offices and studios in Nashville. But in the end, he, he met, or he became aware of someone who wasn't at all like a usual producer, man called Norman Petty. Norman Petty uh, was based in Clovis, New Mexico, which is just, it's quite away from, from Lubbock, but it, in those days, driving, and even today, driving that kind of distance doesn't seem very long. And the, the time zones were rather strange, the time zones, because you could set out uh, from Lubbock to drive to Clovis, and you would gain an hour on the way. So you would arrive in Clovis at the same time as you had set off in, from Nashville. What was interesting about Petty was that he had a recording studio and he he actually encouraged young musicians to come into the studio and develop the, their particular style of performance in the studio. This is something that never used to happen in those days. Uh, producers, or they were called A and R, artist and repertoire men, they were called in, in Britain at the time. Um, the, the act, the, the group, the singer would come into and they would have been rehearsed and they would just play their stuff and then they would go. Petty was a very, very talented engineer and very good at sort of developing and producing um, other young performers, but particularly Buddy. So once Petty starts, is involved with Buddy, he's his manager, but also his recording manager. And so Buddy has, has signed a contract by this time uh, with the Decca organization. Um, but he he gets nowhere with the Decca organization. He has to get out of, he has to still has to perform, but he can't under his own name. So with two friends, in fact, three friends originally, he forms um, a band called the Crickets. So he's anonymous. So um, but what Petty does is let him, and Buddy has this creative streak, not only as a songwriter and a lead guitarist, but also um, he's interested in production. So when he goes to Petty's studio in Clovis with the three others who were going to become the crickets, he, he's allowed to sort of work on his work on the song in the studio in the same way that much later on the Beatles would do with, with George Martin in London. It was very unusual to find a producer like that who would let a, a, a young man with creative potential actually sort of rehearse in the studio as well as record. The Cricket's very first hit is That'll Be The Day. It's released in 1957, when Buddy Holly is only 20, and it's still one of his best-known songs. It has a distinct heavy guitar sound, and although it took its time climbing the charts, after the release of this track, people start to sit up and listen to his music. 
Philip talks about Buddy's musical development and how his style evolved after That'll Be The Day. Because That'll Be The Day is very basic, but soon he's recording very complex songs with, with double tracking. Again, double tracking, not something much used in those days. So he uses double, he double tracks his own voice um, and this wonderful song called Words of Love, you know, which has, uh, sounds like a lot of voice and there's a lot of guitars playing together. It's only really Buddy because Buddy has got this wonderful guitar, which looks like, doesn't look like a guitar. It looks like a spaceship. It's called a Fender Stratocaster. Once he has that, then really, you know, he, he, he creates the sound of Buddy Holly, first in the crickets, but then gradually his, his own name is used as well. So he's recording as Buddy Holly and with the crickets. The crickets tour Australia and the UK in early 1958, receiving rave reviews. In Britain, Buddy is popular for several reasons. He's approachable, he's not wild like Little Richard, or devastatingly handsome like Elvis. He seems more accessible than other rockers of the time, and thanks to him, thousands of children develop an interest in music and learn to play guitar. Philip Norman talks next about the cultural differences between the two countries when it comes to music, and why Buddy's style of music resonated so much with fans across the Atlantic. Um, in Britain, this, he was part of a culture in America where young boys played in country band, they played country music, performance was very much second nature, particularly in the southern states of America, to very, very young men. In Britain, this was not long after the Second World War, a time of austerity and great, great sort of drabness in, 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 in the national life. Um, and the oral sort of tradition of making music, whereas young men might have once played the piano or played an instrument, the harmonica perhaps, but young men in Britain just wouldn't, most of them would never have thought of getting up in front of an audience and playing music. What happened was that there was a little craze uh, for a strange kind of hybrid music called skiffle, which was a bit like the sort of jug and jug music of the of the Depression era when poor people would get together and beat really on sort of improvised instruments because they couldn't afford proper musical instruments. But skiffle started people like John Lennon and Paul McCartney in Liverpool and Mick Jagger and Keith Richards in Dartford in Kent and lots of other young men thinking they'd like to sing and play. Um, but skiffle didn't really last long as a, as, a, as a craze. There was not much to it, really. It was like a hybrid made up of jazz and blues and folk and gospel, all sort of together. And, but they had heard in Britain before this, just before this, the first records of Elvis Presley singing Heartbreak Hotel in particular, which was thrilling to these young men. But they they couldn't understand how it was made. They could they would listen and listen time and again to an Elvis Presley record and have no idea how that song was created. So these young men had, had got guitars because Skiffle used guitars and they wanted to be like Elvis, but they didn't know where to go with Elvis. But Buddy's music, when it started coming across, was composed of very, very simple basic chords that they could they could recognize. So all these little groups of young men all over Britain, uh, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, and then joined by a very George, young George Harrison, 
Mick, um, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards in, in Kent, eventually joined by someone called Brian Jones from the English West Country, they can suddenly play rock and roll because Buddy is like he's teaching them every single song that he releases. He re they come out quite quickly because nobody in those days thought any of these performers were going to last. So they would release a lot of product very quickly to make the most of their popularity because it was supposed not to last. So all these groups of young men could play rock and roll. And these groups of young men in a very few years time would be people like the Beatles, the Rolling Stones and the Who. Buddy Holly is now 21 and he's thriving. He enjoys his newfound wealth, collecting cars and motorbikes, but he doesn't let his good fortune go to his head. He's still reserved and quiet. Under the watchful eye of Norman Petty, the crickets even give a portion of their earnings to their church. Like many people in the American Deep South at the time, Petty is highly religious, and he encourages Buddy and the other members of the band to carry a Bible at all times and read it. Philip Norman talks here about the optimistic, almost naive quality of his music, which was perhaps influenced by religion. The, cr the cricket, Buddy and the crickets in the studio would say a prayer together before they started recording. And um, also, Petty, um, they, they all had to tithe a portion of their earnings to their local church. Uh, so you, it was all done in a rather pious atmosphere, uh, this wonderful music that had nothing. It, it, Buddy Holly's music is very sweet and optimistic. It's always looking for, for the bright side of life. But it's, there is no compromise. It's incredibly exciting music. But there's nothing sort of vulgar about it. There's nothing, you know, sexy about it. It's all hoping and confiding and thinking that a young woman is soon, sooner or later will, will, you know, go out with him and be his, be his best girl. But, but Buddy's, Holly's music has this quality of optimism. And you can listen to it. Anybody can listen to it. I've heard of monk, communities of monks in monasteries listening to Buddy Holly's records. Um, you know, a young child can hear them and love them. Um, but at the same time, they have lasted in this extraordinary way. But they also, because he and Presley between them, very young men, funny thing to say about very young men, between them, they were the fathers of rock and roll. The songcraft of Buddy's music was something else that set him apart. Before he made his breakthrough, Buddy had considered becoming an industrial draftsman, and our guest Philip Norman thinks his songs themselves had a blueprint-like quality, neat and precise. Like many people in the American South, Buddy witnesses racial tension in the late 1950s. His fellow musician, African-American crooner Little Richard, is in town to play a gig when he's arrested by the police for vagrancy, despite having $2,000 in his wallet. Buddy feels terrible about this, and he brings little Richard home for dinner. It shows how ingrained prejudices were that although little Richard has rock star status, Buddy's parents are reluctant to even have him in their house. Buddy tells them that if little Richard can't come to dinner, he won't come home again, and they back down. 
His parents are also troubled when Buddy brings home a Hispanic girlfriend, Maria Elena Santiago. Buddy is absolutely head over heels in love with the young Puerto Rico-born woman, who he first meets while visiting a music publisher in New York. They marry less than a month later, in August 1958, after a whirlwind romance. Maria Elena is very supportive of Buddy's career, and she has an impact on his style, encouraging him to adopt his trademark horn-rim glasses, like the actor Anthony Perkins, and to invest more time and money in his appearance. But she struggles with the level of prejudice in Lubbock, and with Norman Petty, who doesn't want Buddy to publicly acknowledge her. Petty thinks it's important to keep the illusion that Buddy is single, to attract more young female fans. Buddy himself is uncomfortable with this idea, but Maria Elena complies, acting as the band's secretary, and even doing their laundry. Around this time, Buddy finally starts to rebel against Petty's managerial decisions. He makes attempts to get out of his contract, but Petty won't pay him. Buddy urges the other crickets to leave Petty too, but in the end, he's the one who splits with the band. Buddy and Maria Elena move to the more cosmopolitan city of New York. Petty hangs on to Buddy's earnings, creating financial difficulties for the couple. Philip Norman talks here about the breakup of the crickets. Petty eventually breaks them up because he thinks he can find another singer as good as Buddy around the Lubbock area or the Clovis area, which is a ridiculous idea because Buddy's voice is unique and people have tried ever since. Other people have tried to imitate it and they can't really. You get a sort of version of Buddy many, many kinds, on many kinds of records. But that voice was unique. And uh, so so Petty, in the end, just sort of separate, because of Petty, that they separate the crickets from Buddy Holly. Buddy is living in Greenwich Village in New York. And, uh, you know, this he was he, his music that he's recording at the time and putting on tape, um, it's still just the music of what you can see, the West, West Texas Plains with the tornadoes and you know, the cowboys and the pickup trucks, when you listen to it. Buddy keeps experimenting musically, introducing Hawaiian guitar, the Celeste, and the strings. In his final recording session, he records four songs with orchestral backing, True Love Waits, Moon Dreams, and Raining in My Heart, and the poignantly named It Doesn't Matter Anymore. Now it's December 1958. Buddy is working as hard as ever, but he's feeling lost. The more he experiments with new styles, the less popular he actually is in America. He's still doing well overseas, but the couple need money, and Maria Elena is expecting a child. So he accepts an invitation to go on a midwinter tour, the Winter Dance Party, which will take him through the Midwest. In January 1959, he sets out. The tour is chaotic. The tour buses, which are old school buses, zigzag all across the Midwest because the dates the musicians play aren't in any logical order. 
On several occasions, the buses break down in freezing conditions, and Buddy's drummer even has to be hospitalised for frostbite. Philip Norman describes the trip as appallingly planned, and it's no wonder Buddy was fed up. So this tour is really rough on all of them. Um, these awful old school buses and um, no chance really to stay anywhere. There's one night, one night is all the time. And Buddy is very fastidious, uh, about his grooming, um, his hair and all of that. And uh, they play a date in a place called Clear Lake, which is a very big ballroom. It's called the Surf Ballroom. Buddy gets the idea that he would like to fly to the next date, which is quite a short flight, only like half an hour to the next date. Now, you know, we, the rock and roll mythology has people, if they die in plane crashes, it's because drugs or drink or bad behavior of some kind. Buddy only makes this plane trip to get his laundry done. And he takes, or he offers the seat, he has uh, two. Um, New crickets with him, and one is uh, Tommy Olsup, which is who is acting as lead guitarist by this point. But he's used him on lots of records because he, I mean, he isn't he doesn't hog the limelight as lead guitarist. He loves other good guitarists as well. Tommy Olsup and Waylon Jennings are going to go on this plane. Uh, they have to go to Mason City after the gig in Clear Lake. I think Mason City is not much of a city, but there's a there's a fly. So, Dwyer's flying service operates out of Mason City Airport. And they do a great show in Clear Lake. Um, but during the show, uh, is two of his headliners. One is the, the very young Richie Valens, who is a Hispanic rock and roll star. Again, very, very unusual, but is very, very talented and songwriter and performer. And the other one is J.P. Richardson, who is a, actually a disc jockey who's made a few novelty records under the name of The Big Bopper. And The Big Bopper and Richie Valens both persuade Buddy's two companions to let them go on the plane instead. So the plane takes off just after midnight. It's a, a young pilot, only 21, I think he was only 21. It's a Beechcroft Bonanza small plane. But this young pilot has, uh, there are some things wrong with his flying. Uh, he, he's very he's he's not that confident, and he's not certified to fly at night, and he's not really that good at reading the instrument on 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 the dial of the plane. And you can just imagine these young men getting in very very cold, snowy night, getting into Mason City. Um, they paid thirty dollars, thirty dollars each, which is a lot of money in those days for for this charter flight. The flight takes off and it, only a very short distance away, uh, it, it seems that Roger Peterson, the pilot, misread the instrument and thought he was, was, was because there was a lot of ice, icy fog, it seems that he thought he was ascending when he was descending and he flew the plane into the ground. Of a, of a cornfield, a snow-covered cornfield, something like 160 miles an hour, and they were all immediately killed. Um, and this this moment uh, in rock and roll history, of course, has been 
enshrined by Don McLean's American Pie. Um, I can't remember if I cried when I heard about his widowed bride. He's, of course, his buddy. The plane crash makes headlines the next morning. On hearing the news of her husband's death, Maria Elena sadly miscarries. What then is Buddy Holly's legacy today? He inspired many people, and it's hard not to wonder about the other great things he could have achieved had he lived. Philip Norman says Buddy had big plans that never came to fruition, including starting his own record label and publishing company, Prism, recording with Ray Charles, and recording a Latin music album. Maria Elena remarried, and she's remained a staunch supporter of Buddy Holly's music and his legacy. The surviving members of the Crickets continued to perform throughout the second half of the 20th century. Our guest, Philip Norman, says a few words about the lasting impact Buddy Holly's music had on rock and roll. Buddy really sort of created the great 60s generation of pop bands, the Beatles, the Stones, Eric Clapton, Pete Townsend, the Who, all of them. They started off as Buddy's, essentially as Buddy's pupils. Jimmy Page, Led, Led Zeppelin, um, Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan never talks about his past. The only two things he ever admits to was, well, I, that I know of, in the first was uh, his parents had a store that he had to sweep out. And the second was that he saw Buddy Holly at the armory in Duluth uh, on that last tour and thought he was amazing and fantastic. And then, but to Bob Dylan to say someone was amazing is pretty amazing in itself. Thanks for listening to Since the World's Been Turning. I'm Robin Harrison. Thanks to our special guest, Philip Norman, the author of Buddy, the definitive biography of Buddy Holly. Philip has also chronicled the lives of many other famous musicians of the 20th century. Thanks to Will McGillivray for the introduction music and to our writer, Elena McPhee. Please join us again next time as we continue to explore the people, events and places behind Billy Joel's iconic song. We'll discuss the biblical epic Ben-Hur, the film that blazed into movie theatres in 1959, featuring a smouldering Charlton Heston and the world's most famous chariot race. For more episodes and information, you can follow NZ Pods, that's P-O-D-Z, on Instagram and Facebook, or you can visit our website, www.nzpods.com, that's nzpodz.com. Giving us reviews and ratings on your podcast service helps us share this project with more listeners, so please share your thoughts. We greatly appreciate your help in keeping this project going. Thanks again for listening, and please come back next time to hear more from Since the World's Been Turning.